0: Is that on? That's on. That's on. Okay, good. All right. Good morning. So, um, all the rats jumped off the ship, so I'm left. That's how it works around here. No, I I love messing with them, though, so, you know, I'll mock them incessantly and let them know. I'm just going to give you a a warning ahead of time. I don't think anything really violent is going to happen up here, but I had a really bad virus Friday, and... uh, kind of get started eating in the middle of the day yesterday, so that's a good sign. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> but <laughs> you also may realize that I don't shake a lot of hands today, and that's just me trying to be gracious. I'm just trying to be good to you so uh, and helpful. I'm going to do this because I'm going to try to save some gas in the tank. I don't usually do this. You know this. And I might still get up and chase you around with this stool a little bit. That might happen. If you got one of these, I hope you did. They keep you up to date. I know some of the pages in there are regular, and they're, uh, you see them, they look the same after a while. But also there's some changing pages. The Caring Community page does keep us up to date of some details. Um, Julie Cumming has, wow, what a story there. Don Wolf has surgery coming up. Uh, Tim and Julie left yesterday. Hospice has told Tim they're the last 10 days or less with his mom. She's not eating now, and so um, that has been quite a journey. Uh, Tim has lost four people in a couple of years that have been very close to him. It's been an interesting journey. Tim was helpful in my sermon prep for today, because he's walked some of the the journey. And uh, just others who are in here and some others who aren't mentioned, but, you know, there's people in in some uh, stress for sure. So I'm going to give you a moment. Think of one person other than yourself to pray for, and then I'll pray for all of us. Let's pray. As it strikes me, Lord, every time we pray, it's an act of faith and uh, belief. And it's really not important, all of the effects, because we'll never be able to sort all of that out. What really is important is our trust in you and our, our side of the relationship to speak with you, to tell you our hearts. We have preferences and hopes in every circumstance, and uh, ask that your will would be done as well. Because sometimes that lines up with what we expect and sometimes it doesn't. But give us grace and courage. Definitely give us awareness of others through your spirit. And give us a sense of uh, the right way to minister. To uh, spur along. To, be, to take the t- posture that Jesus would take towards those people. And we pray on their behalf because you love them, and we love them. And we pray all of that in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to start a new series today. How many of you enjoyed the last series on uh, other world religions? That was informing. I learned things from both Stefan and Jim in that series. And it was helpful, I hope, for you to get some context. The goal was never to bash people. That doesn't do any good, right? That's not helpful. Um, People came up with mechanisms and developed entire religious systems trying to come up with the solutions, right? Trying to answer the questions. And so often they even have some things that we do poorly and they do well in in all truth. So we can always learn from. Everyone that I speak with who goes on an international mission trip comes back having learned something even from another religion. However, there is definite distinction between Christianity and all the other world religions, they're not the same. It's not the whole, okay, we're in a dark room and we're all grabbing hold of the elephant and everybody's getting hold of the elephant in different ways. That is not a viable metaphor when you actually study out. The distinctions actually cancel each other out in truth. They have to. So that was a great series. This series is uh, going to be a series in Micah, which is in the Old Testament. And we're going to call it trapped like a bird in a cage, which is kind of an unusual statement. We'll get there in a second. Um, that's actually copying straight from a great Assyrian king. That was his phrase. I'll tell you about that in a moment. But the book of Micah is in the Old Testament. It's one of the small prophets. And it, it comes in the, in the time frame that is King Hezekiah... It's about 750 to 700 years before Jesus, and it's a pretty critical time in Israel's history. Micah was a contemporary with Isaiah. He's about 100 years before Jeremiah, and actually, the book of Jeremiah quotes the prophet Micah later. Actually, he's cited by some of the elders. And there's some interesting ways for us to learn some things. Now, I know a lot of times with the Old Testament, people are uncertain. Should we look at that? There was actually a guy back in the early part of the church named Marcion who said, take the Old Testament, throw it out. I don't like that God. I don't like those stories. That was, that's a terrible idea. So Jesus has a new God. There's a different idea. Okay, we're not that. We're not saying throw out the Old Testament. So part of why we regularly have series from the Old Testament is because we want to help you build some continuity between the old and the new, because there's a lot of points of continuity another factor is we often think or i've heard this a lot that maybe the promises and the ideas for israel are the same thing for the church and so that's how this applies to us we are not the church is not israel it's not at the same time in a lot of ways the church is israel okay there's a lot of common ground things that we make the same kind of mistakes we can learn from, we can surely, we're in a different covenant set up, an arrangement to, between us and God, but it's not like everything is changing that entire experience. So we're trying to learn the places where there's continuity and the places where there's difference. This, I can promise you, America is not Israel. That's a mistake that's often taught that modern America is the same as ancient Israel. Not good thinking. That There's no, no real good thinking for that. But we're going to look at some ways we can learn from it. Okay, so going back to the context for this book. Um, so 700 BC, 1450-ish, or maybe some make a case for 1250, is when the exodus happened, when the Jews come out. And then about 1,000 is David. This is always an easy number to remember and dates. 930 BC is when the kingdoms divide, north to south. So we go a couple hundred years until uh, what the context is of this book. It follows Jonah because it also involves discussions with the Assyrians. And so they're a lot the same. Also, this time frame when Hezekiah was a king is when the famous tunnel, Hezekiah's water tunnel, was built in Jerusalem. How many of you have seen the Hezekiah tunnel? Yeah, a number of you have. Um, So that was this time frame, very ancient. But also, we have some connections. Now, there's three things in this series that we're going to look at. There's three basically oracles. That may sound like a creepy word to you, but they're just collections of thinking within the book of Micah. Um, And the first one is written to all peoples everywhere. We're going to see that. That's the addressees. The second Oracle is written to the leadership of Jerusalem, the leadership of Samaria, Israel, and the third one is written to the people specifically of Israel. But what we'll see is there's some common threads between their mistaken beliefs, their false ideas and ours. That's why this book is relevant to us. Because they've made they made some of the same mistakes 750 years before Jesus, so 2,750 years ago, as we make today, which is not really a big surprise when you really think about it. So we mentioned, I mentioned a little bit earlier that this is all about response to fear. Here's what's going on. Hezekiah's king Samaria is almost fallen, although the way that the first oracle is written, Samaria probably wasn't fallen yet, but it might have been even by the second, like by chapter 3 in this book. The Assyrians have surrounded. Their standard procedure was go in the surrounding areas, scoop up any people, any resources, any farmlands, any anything, and then just keep circling in to the cities the strongholds, and then when they would wipe out all of the resources from their surrounding areas, then they would squeeze in, and they would just keep pounding on the walls, and they would build those huge siege ramps to where basically, we don't care how thick your wall is, we're going to build a ramp up to it and come over the top, and in the meantime, if that takes us 18 months to build, or three and a half years, you're starving in there, that was standard operating procedure in the ancient Near East because of the materials they had around them and because of uh, just the circumstance of the lay of the land. They would always build these cities up on these tells, up in these high spaces, and then they would work their way up to it. So these people are physically, legitimately trapped. Now what fascinates me is when I study this and look through it, it dawned on me, we are functioning as if those same traps are kind of there for us, but they 're not physically really there. There are societal constructs that we have built we 're trapped within our own traps that we place in our society. I hope you see what I mean. Uh, I think that there 's three things that you 'll see that we we end up getting into that uh, that play out as traps. Now, just think with me for a minute about social constructs. They're fascinating in our culture right now. Social constructs, societal constructs, are blamed for all kinds of ills and evils in our society right now. The reason that women are oppressed, the reason that different genders are oppressed, the reason that races are oppressed, is because of societal constructs. They're evil. They're terrible. That's the messaging Fascinatingly, we still have thousands of societal constructs that we live into every single day. Some of them are really almost inescapable uh, transportation. You take for granted that you can get from somewhere to somewhere very far away in a very short period of time. You take that for granted. That's a construct. In fact, if I-70 is blocked, how much does it freak everybody out? The other day it was blocked for wind. I've never seen that before. I-70 blocked for wind. But they literally closed it down because wind was blowing trucks over down near Georgetown. And we freak out because we're like, no, my life demands transportation. Think of this one, social media. Oh, my goodness. And this is not a generational issue you would maybe like to think that that's just young people. I guarantee you it's just as much old people that are on Facebook, they're on everything else, they're looking at Fox News, or they're on their phones, they're doing whatever else. We like take this as a for-granted. We have immediate contact with every single person we've ever met. Fascinating construct. Now think of this one. This one dawned on me, and, and I found this like, huh, braces. When I was a kid... And okay, I'm in my mid 50s. So when I was a kid, though, going through middle school, only a few people had braces on their teeth. It was the ones who literally had the worst train wreck in their mouth, right? But it wasn't everybody. There were all kinds of kids in my class that didn't have it. Now, the kids walk through here, middle school kids in particular, every single one of them has braces on. Abby, do you have braces on right now? I thought so. So Abby who so was singing up here, has braces on, it's almost like it's foregone conclusion. Why in the world? How many people in the world get to have their teeth straightened out? Almost none, right? But we somehow, it's almost gotten to the place where, well, it's just a foregone conclusion. And then, you know, college for our kids, it goes on and on. These social constructs that we feel almost trapped into these. It's kind of fascinating. Now, we're going to look at a couple of things. Let's see, show me this next picture here. I forgot, Jella. Turn those lights on a little bit. This is actually a stele from the king, Sennacherib, who attacked Israel and uh, Judah, both. And he tells the story on there. They found this buried away in Nineveh. And he tells the story on there of attacking Hezekiah, the Judite, and having him trapped like a bird in a cage. It's actually written on there, on the stelle. Now, go to the next picture, because this looks more like real trapped in a cage to me. Now, I don't know about you, but people do this on purpose. They go down in there, and I'm like, okay, well, then you put yourself in that cage, which kind of sounds familiar, doesn't it? Okay, you can put the other picture up. Jella, Get your Bibles out if you've got them electronically or if you want to pull out those Bibles from under the chairs. In those Bibles in the chairs, it's page 656, and we're going to read through Micah 1 and 2. I am going to fly through here and only stop occasionally, but read along with me and just listen to it. Amazing metaphors in here, page 656, Micah chapter 1, verse 1. Um, amazing metaphors that kind of fill in the blanks and give some descriptive factors, but you'll pick up on a couple things. I'll try to stop along the way just a bit. The word of the Lord came to Micah of Moresheth during the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, the vision he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem, the capital cities of the north and the south. Here, you peoples, all of you, listen, earth and all who live in it. The sovereign Lord may bear witness against you, and the Lord comes from his holy temple. Look, the Lord is coming from his dwelling place. He comes down. He treads on the heights of the earth. The mountains melt beneath him. The valleys split apart like wax before the fire, like water rushing down a slope. This is because of Jacob's transgressions, because of the sins of the people of Israel. What is Jacob's transgression? Is it not Samaria? What is Judah's high place? Is it not Jerusalem? That connects to verse 7. You'll see in a second. Therefore, I'll make Samaria a heap of rubble, place for planting vineyards. I'll pour her stones into the valley, lay bare her foundations. All her idols will be broken to pieces. Actually, these great cities are idols to them and contain idols. In the temples where her gifts will be burned like fire, I'll destroy the images. Since she gathered her gifts from the wages of prostitutes, often used as an equality to... to idol worship, as the wages of prostitutes, they'll be used again. Because of this, I'll weep and wail. I'll go about barefoot and naked. I'll howl like a jackal and moan like an owl. For Samaria's plague is incurable. It has spread to Judah. It has reached the very gate of my people, even to Jerusalem itself. Now watch this list of cities. They've got some picture images in them, but they also believe this is maybe the actual route that the Assyrians took of capturing the cities around as they're tightening the net. Tell it not in Gath, weep not at all, in Beth-Ophrah, roll in the dust, pass by naked, and in shame you who live in Shafir. Those who live in Za'anan will not come out. Beth-Ezel is in mourning. It no longer protects you. Those who live in Maroth writhe in pain, waiting for relief because disaster has come from the Lord, even to the gate of Jerusalem. Who's bringing disaster? The Lord. You will live in Lachish, harness fast horses to the chariot. You who are where the sin of daughter Zion began for the transgressions of Israel found in you. Therefore you will give parting gifts to Morasheth Gath. The town of Akzib will prove deceptive to the kings of Israel. I will bring a conqueror against you. Who live in Marishah. The nobles of Israel will flee to Adullam. Shave your head in mourning for the children in whom you delight. Make yourself as bald as a vulture, for they'll go from you into exile. Woe to those who plan iniquity, to those who plot evil on their beds. At morning's light, they carry it out because it's in their power to do it. Now, listen to this second trap that they have. The first one is idolatry built around the power of their central cities. The second one is they covet fields, they seize them, houses, take them, defraud people of their homes, rob them of their inheritance. Therefore, the Lord says, I am planning disaster against this people, from which you cannot save yourselves. You'll no longer walk proudly, for it will be a time of calamity. In that day, people will ridicule you. They'll taunt you with this mournful song. We're utterly ruined. My people's possession is divided up. He takes it from me. He assigns our fields to traitors. Therefore, you'll have no one in the assembly of the Lord to divide the land by the lot. And here's the third thing. Do not prophesy, the prophets say. Don't prophesy about these things. Disgrace will not overtake us. You descendants of Jacob, say, should it be said, does the Lord become impatient? Wait, does God do things like this? Do not my words do good to the one whose ways are upright? Lately my people have risen on up like an enemy. You strip off the rich robe from those who pass by without a care, like men returning from battle. You drive the women of my people from their pleasant homes. You take away my blessing from their children forever. Here, here's the third thing. They're saying, don't say anything bad's going to happen. We don't want to hear the truth. Meanwhile, this is what you're doing. Get up, go away, verse 10, for this is not your resting place. Because it's defiled, it's ruined beyond all remedy. If a liar and deceiver comes and says, I'll prophesy for you plenty of wine and beer, will that be the perfect prophet for this people? Verse 12. I will surely gather all of you, Jacob. I'll surely bring together the remnant of Israel. I'll bring them together like a sheep in a pen, like a flock in its pasture. The place will throng with people. The one who breaks open the way will go up before them. They'll break through the gate and go out. Their king, wonder who that would be, will pass through before them. The Lord is at their head. Now, this is a micro, uh, the first oracle. All three are structured this same way. He tells us pictures of their traps, their reactions to the fear, and then he lays out some hope. This is what the text gives us. I think we should always, when we read these texts, what does it give us on the outset? First of all, all people need to listen and learn. That's you. That's me. We're included. Second of all, the disaster, over and over, already, tells us, comes from God. What does that tell you about disaster? Does that mean it's always horrible and evil and from the enemy? Well, absolutely not. That's fascinating, isn't it? Definitely fascinating to American Christians. Another thing, their traps Idols, greed, avoidance of the truth are clearly there and they're caught in them and acting into them. Next, God will deliver, but only God will deliver. And some of the deliverance will be now and it will be limited to the remnant and some will be complete when the king comes through the gate At a later date, the truth is, that final deliverance hasn't even happened yet, 2,750 years later. That's what the text gives us. Now, let's see if we can find a couple other things in here. First of all, idols. There are American idols, right? Now, you immediately think of the TV show, right? The singers and everything, okay. Tell me some real American idols. Say what? Say it again, one more. JFK was an American idol. That's why I, I didn't even think of it as a person. That's he definitely was one, though. What else? Youth, Youth? yes. Being young, Whew, man, we'll do anything to be young. Property, Property? yeah. We're going to cover that a little bit more in the second aspect. What else? The liberty is an interesting idol. And actually, the idea of freedom itself is probably an American idol. I don't know if you think of it that way. We have come to see freedom as a God-given, unbelievable, there's no even argument about this. I'm not so sure. Go one more. Yeah, so entertainment, including sports, anybody in that realm. Now, actually, anything, here's what an idol actually is. Anything that replaces the one true living God when looking for purpose or meaning. That's a very simple but very workable definition. If we are looking for purpose, which every human being in the history of the world has looked for purpose. Why in the world am I here and why does anything happen? right? Everything has been driven by finding purpose. The other thing is we want to understand it. What makes it go? How does it work? That has driven everything about us, right? An idol is anything that replaces the one true living God is the answer to that question. And in America, really, freedom is a primary thing that we've replaced it. We've replaced it with power just as they did, Stop and think about this last election cycle. Power is a huge issue for us. It really is. Naturalism and secularism. The idea, well, so atheism really is a non-starter. Do you realize that? A belief in a nothing doesn't make any sense. But what we've done is we'll find something else, that's just natural and like just without God, we'll do just about anything to avoid there actually being a God. Either we don't want to know who the God is or we don't want to have to pick the God from all the gods that we think or we think it's foolish to admit that there's a metaphysical anything beyond what we physically can measure and see. All of those are ridiculous prospects in reality. They really are. Because something inside of us knows there's something more But now we're trying to talk ourselves down. Now, how about greed? American greed. What does American greed look like? Property was mentioned a little bit ago. That's a big deal for us. What else? Money. Money. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) don't have to fill that one in. What else? Time. That is a great one. We literally believe... Because here's what greed is: greed is not. Um, it's it's not prosperity. Only socialism, socialism says that prosperity is evil. It is not. Greed is never enough of prosperity. Greed takes it to the point of saying. Uh, there's no way I could have enough bedrooms in my house. There's no way I can have enough property. There's no way I could have enough money. There's no way I could have enough time. There's no way I could have enough youth. There's no way I could have enough, 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 enough. Now, did I just describe our our society? We have these construct traps that believe we have the uh, right to more, always. Here's one I doubt you even think of as greed. Have you realized how much of a luxury it is that we can complain? In most places, in fact, the prophets of Israel were unique in the ancient Near East in that they often said something different from what the king was saying. All the rest of the prophets around the world knew, you better line up with the king or you're a dead man. I mean, it was a simple proposition. We have the freedom to stand outside and picket and raise signs and say, not my president. You know what a luxury that is? The question is how much freedom is enough to say that and how much is just flat greed? I bet you haven't thought about it that often in that context. But that's what frustrates us after a while is like that's why people eventually say, "Well, wait, every life matters." Well, yes, Black lives matter, but wait, every life. Why? Because it's like, how much does? How does this work? Where does greed end with that? The third thing is avoidance of the truth. I won't put you on the spot to, but <laughs> have you ever met an American who thought it was their fault? You think of the conversations you had this week about everything, from the government to the snow to the whatever, and everybody's got a really good reason the way it should be a different way, but it is never their fault. It's always somebody else's fault. We avoid, it is the standard like third grade answer, it wasn't me, right? It's not me. There's something vastly and desperately wrong with our system. We've got societal problems that have us trapped like a bird in a cage, but it's not my fault. It's somebody else's fault, right? This is if I would ever encounter anybody who would walk up to me and say, I'm in a desperate situation right now, describe the situation and then say, It's my fault that I'm here. I would give them my house. It's just not the posture we take, it's everybody else's fault. We use the excuse, and this is just an excuse nobody's perfect. That really doesn't mean it's my fault. That means nobody's perfect, and it's just an excuse for why it is my fault, but I'm dodging out from underneath it anyway. Asganes said this, Sad is the society whose success is so successful and whose power is so powerful that they believe that they can afford not to learn. We're in these same traps that Israel was in 750 years before Jesus. Now, there were times when we truly were trapped. The great wars, including our own civil, where you're making decisions that are brutal, and you're trapped. But we're not in a trapped time. We put ourselves there. Let me give you some thoughts to think about this. First of all, sin often works, but it doesn't work best And it doesn't work for very long. Now you say, how did we get to sin? Well, we are first of all, our next series at the end of this is going to be a series to talk about sin. Because, of course, sin is like one of those words when Americans are trying to avoid their... They're offended if you would say they are responsible to the point of sinning. I am as well, right? As a good American... But sin is the term the Bible uses to describe things that don't work best, and they don't work for very long. They had been in these three constructs, we're in ours. But somehow we keep going. All sin has consequences, and they're negative consequences. All sin does. Varying consequences, varying levels. You know that. You could start through the, the dichotomies and all of the, the kind of distinctions and layers in your head right now of where sin is. You have one. You have a hierarchy of sin in your head. It's almost always based on the consequences for those sins. But all sin has consequences. We can talk our way around it, Stay, try to stay out of it, but it's truth. Now, here's where it gets really tricky. I want you to listen very closely and stick... Through this math with me. If every single let's say this room has a hundred people in it, let's say every single person because of sin is partially responsible for the problem at some level. Now, if you understand the way that the Bible has laid out our story, we originally were given the image of God and we're perfect in that, and then we chose traps, or traps, and ever since then, every single one of us has been part of the problem to some degree. Now how could I go through and pick the problem, it doesn't even matter what the problem is, how could I go through and delineate who's responsible for how much of the problem? Just in this room, how could we figure that out? Now let's multiply that. Let's take that outside of this room. Let's take that to the whole society. 350 million people. Who's responsible for what? To what degree? For what consequences? Oh wait, we're not done yet. Because the consequences drip over from generation to generation. Not like the Hindu idea. Not like you were responsible before, so now you personally are punished for your responsibility before. No, it is consequences just work like a spider web. After a while, it's impossible to even figure it out. So why would we think, why do we believe that we have the right to avoid the consequences? Why do we think pain and suffering is not for us? At what level do we believe somebody else deserves pain and suffering, but we don't? Now you say, well, I'm not as bad as that guy. Who cares? In the grand scheme of how this all drips onto everybody, some things are completely impersonal. They're nothing to do with a personal scenario. And the consequences are there. The question is, when you're holed up in the city and the siege ramp is outside and there is not really a lot of hope, how are you going to respond to that? If you do, like most Americans do, you'll avoid the problem. You'll reproduce the problem because you say, hey, I had to live through this. So even if it's not conscious... You literally, your dad abused you, you abuse your kid. How many Americans are guilty of that story? Or you're going to avoid the pain and suffering at all costs because you say that's not my problem. I'm going to take you back to the beginning of this whole thing. If God is responsible for the disaster, why do you think you don't have to deal with it? Do you really think God doesn't know what he's doing? This is a critical element to pain and suffering. Because if you believe Christianity is designed as an exit ramp, a way out of pain and suffering, you have not heard the story. And it's as simple as this. Jesus came, and he didn't just experience the pain and suffering and then get rid of it, had he done that, it would have been a sign to us to say, pain and suffering is meaningless. Or had Jesus come and stayed above all the pain and suffering, and out of it, then he also would have been sending us the signal, pain and suffering is meaningless, it doesn't mean anything, it's purposeless, I am here to save you and deliver you from it. The difference was, Jesus came, entered in, stayed in it, and did not eradicate it, what's the end result of that message? The end result is, I'm here to go through the pain and suffering with you. It has purpose. It has meaning. A lot of Christian churches will not teach that story. They will tell you Christianity is about figuring out a way to avoid the pain. I'll tell you this. If you're going through hell, keep going. But don't try to go to other gods for solutions. Don't try to buy your way out of it. And whatever you do... Don't try to say it's not my fault. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful to you. These uh, stories, these scenarios, and then the word from your prophets uh, help inform us. I think we often struggle in understanding why? And sometimes we look back on a story like this and say, well, they get what they deserved." Well, the truth is we all get what we all deserve. So that doesn't really help if we would instead all view ourselves humbly to recognize, okay, what does God have in mind? If we wouldn't try to escape pain, as Buddhism teaches us, if we wouldn't try to uh, just settle in for pain, as Hinduism teaches us, or try to live our way out of it legalistically, as Islam teaches us, if we would instead understand right in the middle of it is when the great Christian virtues make the most sense. Peace, hope, faith, love. Give us those things today. We uh, worship you and honor you in Jesus' name. Amen. If there's ushers here, we do collect an offering every week. After that message, you probably don't want to give me a thing. I don't blame you. But uh, this is a give to God, and uh, you are generous always. Thank you for your generosity, and we hope to represent your giving and use it well for God's kingdom.